this is Richie from the Metal Cell Podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Ben Ward of Orange Goblin. How are you, man? I'm all right. Not too bad at all. That's good. This is the 150th episode of the show, so we had to get star power in. Oh, um, bloody honoured. <laughs> <laughs> and I have Joe from Gamma Bomb and Rona from Ten Ton Slug joining me as well. Thanks, lads. Right, fellas. Hi, so, my man, you're just back from a Scandinavian tour. What was it like being back on the road? It's fantastic. You know, obviously the last couple of years have been hard on, on everyone in the music industry, not just the bands, but promoters and uh, agents and uh, and road crew. So um, there was a little, bit, a, a little bit of trepidation about how easy it was going to be crossing borders and that sort of thing. But we planned for it really well. We made sure we had our carnet stamped and all that sort of thing. And yeah, there was there was no problems at all. It all went pretty smooth. Great crowds, uh, great merch sales, and a great time. So now we've we've got a couple of weeks to uh, refresh the batteries and head back out onto the UK tour. Yeah, lovely. So was this a, was this the first tour, man, with the new bass player? Was it? It was the first tour. Yeah, obviously we've done a few shows with Harry, and he settled in really well since day one. Really, he was a natural choice for the job. Um, and uh, we did a couple of shows in the summer. We did Bloodstock Festival. Uh, we did that Night of Salvation, the Damnation Festival, and Hard Rock Hell. But yeah, this was the first sort of string of dates we've done with Harry. And you know, he's taken to it like a duck to water. He's 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 brilliant. He learned the songs during the whole sort of lockdown period. And we've now got you know quite a wide range of songs from our from our back catalogue that he's he's learned and and we can go ahead with. So everything's looking looking rosy in the Orange Goblin camp for the future. We've got a new record deal and plans to record uh, and release that next year. So, yeah, all good. You didn't have to pass any initiation rights. Well, no. Harry's been a, a long-time friend of the <laughs> band anyway. I mean, going back to before we was Orange Goblin, it was called Our Haunted Kingdom. Harry used to play in a death metal band called Decompose, so we used to know him from them days. And... It was him when he was in Hangnow that coined the phrase "Orange fucking Goblin Baby" and got quoted <laughs> on the back of the T-shirt. Really. So, so Did you he... know, we didn't really have to initiate him at all. We he fits fits in really well. You know, he likes to drink, he likes to laugh. We we like the same kind of music, the same sort of comedy, and you know, he's you know the perfect guy for the job. Did he do guest vocals on one of the albums, the earlier? He album? did. Yeah, he sings on Turbo Effelin off the Big Black. It? Yeah, yeah. And the the reason for that that song being called Effelent instead of F- Elephant was the fact that in the studio we were so stoned. No one, <laughs> we was watching a TV show about about some sort of wildlife thing. You know, we're in the studio and the TV's only got like four channels or something. So we start watching this thing about elephants on safari. Everyone's so stoned that they couldn't actually say the word ele- elephant. <laughs> Coming out Effelent and. Uh, I think Chris was sitting there and, and someone had mentioned, like, why does it always look as if elephants are moving in slow motion? And Chris was like, because they're actually the fastest land mammals on the planet. And if, if you didn't slow the film down, you wouldn't be able to see them. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, well, Effelin. <laughs> I hung out with Harry, actually, in Bloodstock. Um, he was in Blind River. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's still doing Blind River. He considers that his day job still, because that's, you know, he fronts that band. He's been doing it for a few years now. And um, yeah, we, they're, they're we, active. We camp beside them. There's great lads, great fun. Yeah, exactly. Rock they're actually coming over to Ireland next year, doing a doing a tour with uh, Sky Pilot. Yeah, um, booked them both some shows over here in the UK as well. So uh, I know Harry's looking forward to that. 
Yeah, man, you have a huge uh, Irish fan base. Uh, you know, how do you feel about hitting Ireland? Orange Goblin, I mean, obviously we're really disappointed that the shows had to be postponed in December. And mm. in hindsight, they, they may have been able to go ahead. But at the time, we had to make a decision and there was still uncertainty. So we um, we spoke to the promoters, rescheduled them for towards the end of next year. Um so we're disappointed not to come back this year because it's been a while. And yeah. um, we always have a great time in Ireland, whether it's north or south. It's, it's a fantastic time. We've always been well received there. We've been going over there since, I think it was 1997, 98, something like that was the first time we came over. So, you know, we've got a long history of, of touring yeah. over in Ireland and Republic of Ireland. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a shame we can't do it this year, but obviously next year, We'll be back, and hopefully by then we'll have we'll have new material to promote as well. I think the last time myself and Ronan saw you, Ben, was for Siege. Was it Ron? Yeah, and I I lost my T-shirt at it. I took off my big black T-shirt, the 20th <laughs> anniversary one. I had 20 years of was it bikes, boobs, bombs, yeah, yeah, bitches. yeah. <laughs> and I was just sweating because you're my favorite band. I was going mental, so I left <laughs> the T-shirt right beside the monitor and just went moshing. I came back and someone, <laughs> someone stole the T-shirt. So. Oh, okay. It was a great, crazy show down there in Limerick. Was, oh, man. I mean, we turned up, we just like, this is just a pub. And then we hadn't actually seen around the back, there's actually a venue and everything. It, it was fucking brilliant. We had a great time. Everybody just hammered and yeah. go for it. Yeah. That'd be us, all right. Harder to go home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you touched there earlier, Ben, as well, about playing Bloodstock. I mean, that has a special place in your hearts, I think. Did you actually play the first ever Bloodstock? Was we that did. in a pub or something? No, it was it was the old Derby Assembly Hall. Okay. So, you know, it was, it was about a thousand capacity indoor event. And the first year they had, I think it was Saxon headlined with Glenn Hughes and Skyclad or it was either Skyclad or Return to the Sabbath, someone like that. And we was hanging out with Martin Rolkier from, from Sabbath and oh. uh, he smashed up our dressing room. Uh, he's got a he's got a bloody habit of doing that too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and we got the blame for it, obviously. And after a great show, we was we was told by the Bloodstock uh, family that we weren't welcome and we got banned. So it wasn't until 2012 when we returned and we headlined the Sophie Lancaster stage, recorded our um, our live DVD there and CD, and uh, it was great. And a couple of years later, they invited us back to play to open the main stage. And then obviously this year, we went back and played a bit later on on the main stage. So the yeah. progression is really nice. I'm hoping yeah. that it's going to result in a headline slot on the main stage. Yeah, cool. And I mean, like Diamond Head and Saxon and Judas Priest as well were playing. Yeah, it was, it was a great day for, you know, old school heavy metal. So, uh, I mean, if we are going to go back and have a headline, we're going to have to give some thought to our production because basically it's basically non-existent at the moment. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's just the backing... Well, I mean, you know, we do have those screens these days, but we've yeah. never really given much thought to that sort of thing. We're, we're a band that is all about just four guys going on stage, turning up as loud as we can and, and going for it 100%. And I think if you've got that, you don't really need a great deal of production. Mm. You know, Motorhead was a perfect example of that. Yeah. And ACDC in the Bon Scott days, you know, apart from the bomber lighting rig, Motorhead never really went overboard with lasers and, and things on stage because yeah. it was so powerful with everything else. That bomber lighting rig was special though, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. Did you actually see them, Ben, when, for that tour where you, you were around the, the right I'm age, I'd say, were you? No, I mean, I, I grew up in a place called Margate in Kent, which was kind of, 
a little bit remote with regards to bands that used to be on tour at the time and and I was too young. My parents were always reluctant to let me travel to London to go to gigs. So it wasn't until I was much older that I started going to the shows. And I think the first one was like the Metallica Black Album tour around 93, something like that. Oh, um, fucking hell. Okay. played at the Milton Keynes Bowl with Diamond Head and Megadeth and The Almighty, I think it was. Oh, Jesus. Man. The Almighty. There's a band that disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Ricky's doing all right for himself, doing the Blackstone Cherry thing and, and his solo project. So, um, But I'm not sure why any of the other guys are up to. I saw them opening for Megadeth and Alice in Chains in Dublin in 1988, I think, or 89. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were a great band, you know, I had a lot of time for them back in the early days. It's good though, man. Like, you know, if you think of that bill, like Megadeth, Alice in Chains and Almighty, it is it's a lot more varied than you get a lot of the time nowadays, you know? It is, yeah. Yeah, that was the thing back then. I mean, I remember our old bass player, Martin, telling me about, um, I think he went to see, uh, I can't remember, was it Clash of the Titans or something like that? Or maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe it was Metallica and they, they had Alice in Chains supporting them and, and no one really knew who Alice in Chains were back then. Yeah. And it was kind of just before the whole Seattle grunge scene blew up. And... Now, because he'd seen them with Metallica, he, he instantly sort of took a shine to them. And, you know, they did by rights have a kind of slightly heavier and harder edged and, and you know, run of the mill grunge bands and, and still probably do. But, um, yeah. They got tormented, though, in the early days by the likes of Metallica and Slayer fans because they had, they had to kind of put up with, you know, just abuse because um, a, yeah. a lot of fans didn't just get their, their type of music. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's kind of a famous thing within the scene that if you support Slayer, you're going to get abused anyway because yeah. Slayer fans are, te- are generally there just to see Slayer. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my always favorite. Sort of taking a risk on different bands to take out. I mean, they took Caius out in the early days. They took the Sword out. Uh, they took out, was it Bocassa recently? And they, mm. they've always sort of championed up-and-coming bands, even Ghost in the early days, I think they took And Gajira and all those. A lot yeah. of those bands got their breaks with Metallica. Yeah. One of my favourite bands is Malice. They're like this sort of kind of wannabe, like they're sort of like Judas Priest and, you know, Rat mixed together. Yeah. <laughs> they, wow. they supported Slayer on the Rain and Blood tour and they had like, the, it was the end of their career. <laughs> <laughs> death by spit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> any band with any sort of percentage of rat in their sound is going to go down <laughs> well. <laughs> round and round. <laughs> so come here, congratulations on signing with Peaceful Records. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a dream come true for me because obviously, like I said in the press release, when we started the band, Peaceville was one of those labels where we'd just buy anything that they released. It was big fans mm-hmm. like My Dying Bride and Anathema and Paradise Lost, also Autopsy and Dark Throne. Some great um, bands there, man. Yeah. Chris had drummers, bit old school gnarly punk and he's, he's into his doom and stuff like that. So... So, you know, when our deal expired with Candlelight after the last album, we weren't even sure if we was going to do another album. I mean, Chris was 52 years old yesterday. He's like, I'll, I'll be dead by the time we record again. <laughs> we, we actually spoke to a lot of labels. There was a lot of interest. Um, had quite a few meetings. But Peaceville were the ones that showed the most kind of enthusiasm and the most vision of what we want to do. So um, it, was a, it was a really easy choice at the end of the day. And even now, they've 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 already proven to us that they're they're, they're the right right decision. So it's a uh, it's an exciting time. Yeah, and they're based yeah, in the UK, just, which makes things easy. 
a bit of enthusiasm goes a long way, really, doesn't it? You know, it does. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you probably know as well as I do, Joe, that a lot of labels will promise you the world, but it's whether they deliver it is the sort of uh, the crux of the matter, really. Yeah, we've we've had we've had labels that have. You know, we've been good. We've been lucky. Rise Above were really good to us and gave us a sort of launch of our career. First five albums and Lee Dorian was a massive help, obviously taking us on tour with Cathedral and taking us yeah. to Japan and putting us into, on tour in the States and things like that. It really opened a lot of doors. And then we signed to Sanctuary while it was still kind of co-owned. Maiden's Maiden's management had started that label and they, they were great. We had a lot of good press off that, but... Shortly after the release of Healing Through Fire, the label folded. They they just realised they didn't want to keep doing it. So so we found ourselves without a home, and that's when we signed to Candlelight. Um, and the first album of Candlelight went really well. And then Candlelight got, got bought out by um, Spine Farm and Universal. Mm-hmm. And obviously then we was a really small fish in a massive pond. And our album came out around the same... Our last album came out around the same time as Ghost and Gojira... Yep a lot of bigger stuff that, that they obviously had priority to, for. So, Is Lee still involved with that? Lee Barrett? No, I think he, um, I think he uh, left having anything to do with it quite a long time ago. Oh, okay. I know he, he started in the early days, which is why it was, you know, more of an extreme label, putting out black metal and stuff like that. Mm. They diversified and signed stuff like Entombed. They signed Crowbar for a little while, put out a few COC albums and yeah. uh yeah, now it's just sort of a general heavy metal label. But in them days when Lee started it, it was renowned as kind of an extreme black and death kind of label. Yeah, I read actually, um, going back to Peaceful there, I read Hammy's book. It was brilliant. Yeah, I've, I've never read it, but I heard there's, it's a bit of a roller coaster and, <sighs> and people have recommended it to me because he was yeah. ill, quite ill a couple of years ago and apparently he's on the mend. And, and That's good to hear. But like he's very honest on it. He's straight up with the mistakes he made. Yeah, you know? yeah, I think that's what comes through in Peaceville. They're still very down to earth. I mean, they've they've released albums by some of the biggest bands in the metal scene, and but they're still grounded and they 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 still try to nurture homegrown talent. Um, you know, looking at bands like Hell Ripper that have signed to them recently. Yeah, great band. Uh, played with them uh, before. Great fun. Yeah, I just want to talk to you as well. Did you actually play in Loftus Road <laughs> with uh, QPR? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's where I met Martin, and when I, like I said, I grew up in Margate, and I left there when I was fifteen. Martin and I were doing a two-year apprenticeship as footballers at Queens Park Rangers, and this is going back to when QPR were actually, you know, half decent. It was the first division still then, yeah. before the Premier League, and the two seasons we were there, they finished top London club, finished above Arsenal and Spurs. And was Chelsea. Clive Allen with them then? Then. Clive Allen wasn't with them at the time but he used to hang around the club quite a lot because he's obviously okay. a legend there at the time the, the stars were like Les Ferdinand Andy Sinton oh, Ray yeah, Wiggins, yeah, yeah. Roy Wegerly uh, Darren Peacock they had, a, they had some great players right there. Yeah. Alan McDonald was captain then Northern Ireland captain and um, and yeah they they were, they were a great side and me and Martin sort of bonded over our love of heavy metal and then during the second year of our apprenticeship, we started going to gigs together and started drinking more and started to realise that football wasn't for us. It was it's something that had become a bit of a chore, if anything, because you go home at weekends and everybody would just want to talk to you about football. And I was like, <laughs> I want to get away from football. So, so music was where it was at. And that's, that's how we came to meet up with Joe and Pete, who Martin knew from where he lived in London, North Holt. And 
we were sitting around on the dole at the end of that uh, apprenticeship and listening to music all day, getting drunk and, and said, why don't we start our own band? Let's have a go at doing something. And it was, you know, an exciting time in the UK around that time. We had Cathedral were kind of playing the furrow in the doom scene, but there was also up and coming bands like Acrimony and Electric Wizard. Uh, Morn were established then. And you obviously had that whole Peaceville scene, like I said, with Paradise Lost and Anathema. So doom was quite prevalent within the UK. And being based in London, anytime bands came through there, we would sort of pitch ourselves to be the support act. And we were lucky enough to get on a lot of shows and we got noticed by Lee Dorian and signed to Rise Above quite early on. Wow. I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, that was key, really, wasn't it, being, being in London? It was, yeah. I mean, not just for that UK doom scene, but also the sort of what they call the stoner scene from the US when that was kicking off and getting tied in with the whole Sabbath thing. There was, you know, uh, Fu Manchu and uh, Monster Magnet and Caius and Unida and all those bands were coming over and we would get to meet those guys and be asked to play on them shows and, and it kind of forged our path in those early days. Yeah, and you'd get to know a lot of these lads as well. Exactly, yeah. We were, we were very lucky. We're not, we're not blind to that. I mean, no one sort of stays around for 26 years without some hard work as well. But we do appreciate that we was in the right right place at the right time, I think. What are you saying, Joe? What's on said? Do you think it was more you guys got in some way lumped in with the US stoner stuff? Like, Because it always seemed more Sabbathy or motorheady even before you guys started sounding. Exactly, yeah. Motorhead. I mean... And at the time, we kind of embraced that whole getting lumped into the stoner thing because it kind of elevated our career and we didn't have a problem with it. And then only after that whole scene started to get a little bit stale when you had Scandinavian bands started calling themselves Desert Rock and things. And it was kind of made a mockery of the whole thing. We was like, do you know what? We're, we've always been into like doom and the slower stuff, but not so much, you know, the what you'd consider the essential stoner rock albums. For me, it's stuff like Jerusalem by Sleep and... Uh, yeah, the Electric Wizard albums. We're not, we're not that slow. And, and like Joe says, we've always had more of a trouble influence and a motorhead influence, and and mixed that with Black Sabbath and and just generally everything that that we like as a band. Yeah. Now you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but I remember when he came out initially, and I don't know, was it fucking Krang or one of those magazines? They were they were they, were, they weren't too kind to you. Put it that way. Initially, no, I mean, is that true? Part. I can just remember something about the name or something. Yeah, because you know the name seemed ridiculous at the time. We dressed like a bunch of fucking idiots. We were wearing <laughs> flares and sort of seventies throwback jackets and things like that. So we didn't do ourselves any favour. And, and the fact that we weren't very professional in them early days, we was complete and you know, some pissheads. And we used to we used to see shows and tours as an excuse to just go and drink as much as we could and, huh. and you know the show was secondary. So, you know, but the, a lot of the criticism that was thrown at us was was justified because we were a disgrace. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we soon learned, especially when, you know, we got someone like Lee Dorian puts his faith in you and, and you start touring and then you start headlining shows and people are coming out and paying their hard-earned money to come and see the band. You realise there's a, a responsibility to actually be a little bit more professional. So we we, we learned from that and it was it held us in good stead. But yeah, a lot of the criticism in the early days was very well justified. Ajit, that as well, Joe, the bomb. You're right in the sense that it's only whenever you start seeing tour support bills and stuff and you see that people are spending tens of thousands of pounds that you're like, oh shit, fucking maybe we should get a backdrop, you know, yeah. and that kind of thing. 
kind of thing like yeah, yeah like I, th- I think every band starts out the same way and especially like you know everyone in ireland's probably a big boozer yeah. but like whenever you're young and you're a fan of booze and you know you're given carte blanche it is very hard to sort of get your act together and it does take a few years you know yeah exactly good yeah i don't think any band ever sets out to have a real kind of you know expectation of where they're going to go with it and we did especially when we started the band as i say we were all sitting around unemployed and it was something to relieve the boredom and we'd have been happy if we'd just sort of recorded a demo put that out and maybe got a few local shows but it kind of snowballed really quickly and we didn't really sort of understand how quickly it was happening and We'd okay. gone from playing, playing like the Swan and Bottle in Uxbridge to a bunch of pissed up twats on a Friday night to supporting Cathedral in Japan. Wow. So it, it was like three years, in the space of three years. So it kind of came at us pretty fast. And it took us a while to sort of take that in and realise the difference between when we'd started and where we were at. Yeah. Maybe it was, the, was it, do you think the big black album was the change there where you started getting a lot of positive press and... Uh, Big Black did get us a lot of positive press, but so did Time Travelling Blues. Time Travelling mm. Blues, I think, was the one that, because it was a change of sound. The first album, Frequencies from Planet 10, I think you can tell is the sound of five, five guys, as it was at the time, because Pete was still in the band. It was five guys that were, you know, let loose in a studio for the first time, like a kid in a candy store, and we've got fucking keyboards on there and all these weird vocal effects and just pissing about with everything we could find, basically. <laughs> Good piss, Tom. Good piss. <laughs> time traveling blues was where we kind of found our niche, and that is essentially where we said, you know, we wanted to escape from all that stoner, spacey rock and go more in the direction of the greasy, dirty biker rock of Motorhead and and what we're more sort of known for these days. That's uh, funny enough. The first Orange Goblin song I heard was on Kerrang, and it was Blue Snow with the motorcycle at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like ninety eight, I think. Ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. It was brilliant. I was like, "Whoa, what's this?" Yeah. <laughs> ben, were you full time at it at that stage, or were you holding down jobs? No, we all had to work loads of shitty jobs. We um, we was doing warehouse jobs because you know they you get them through in a. a a temping agency and you could go in and work when you needed to and then if you had a tour coming up you just quit your job and, and then pick it up again and hopefully when you come back so we jumped from job to job we worked doing all sorts of shit like I say driving forklifts working in warehouse wrapping stuff making picture frames Joe and I worked at Wembley Arena making sandwiches in the pre-packing kitchens and things like that Jesus and then Christ. I managed to go back there and play there a year later or, or a few months later which was okay, uh, Kind that's a like classic. That's, that's what, what was that show, man? What what got you to Wembley? It was um, the we we toured with Alice Cooper and Dio in two thousand. Oh, it was the Brutal Planet tour. Alice Cooper. Oh man, that has a great album as well. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic production every night. I mean, he was doing the best songs off Brutal Planet plus all the hits from his back catalogue, and he had. Dio was main support and then we got a call from our agent at the time it was Derek Kemp at the agency just said I think I've landed you guys the opening slot on this this tour and was like what's the venues and he was like well it's Wembley Arena Birmingham NEC Bournemouth Arena Cardiff Arena we're like count us in and it was like we'd you know gone from packing sandwiches at Wembley Arena to, to treading the boards there I mean it was, it was kind of euphoric but soul destroying at the same time because it was one of those tours where the two you know headline band and the main support would have such long sets that we'd get half hour squeezed in and we was going on stage as they opened the door so you'd walk out at Wembley Stadium there's like 21 people in the ring in the <laughs> ring. but it was cool it was it was great there seemed to be a bit more of that back in the day I remember seeing 
um, Alice Cooper and Viking Skull were opening the oh, show. Yes, yeah, like, yeah, I used man. to see a lot more that were like some up and coming UK bands who weren't necessarily yeah. you know popular metal could get a shot. You know, yeah, I was I was talking to Gordon from Raging Speed on about that the other week. Was uh, we were saying about you know Viking Skull was a twentieth anniversary or something, and they saying he's trying to get them back together, do something. And we talked about you know, both supporting Alice Cooper and doing stuff like the Bulldog Bash back in them early days. It was great times. As a front man, having seen the likes of Ozzy and Ronnie James Dio and stuff, the way they deliver, the way they talk to the crowd as well, did you pick up anything from those? Oh, yeah, nice. obviously. I mean, I'm not ashamed to admit that I pick up a lot from every band we tour with, whether it's, you know, legends like... I mean, I've never toured with Ozzy, but we did the Ozfest in California, got mm. invited over there by Sharon to open the main stage, which was a huge honour. Um, and, you know, we've toured with the likes of, as you say, Dio and Alice Cooper, but touring with Down and Phil Anselmo and Clutch oh. and Bill Fallon and Brilliant. Santos and Wino and people like that that I always looked up to as a front man. You, you kind of do stand there and you, you learn from it. And in them early days, like I said, I went. I was a bit naive to, to how I should conduct myself. But when you're on tour with the likes of Neil Fallon, you, you learn how to be a lot more professional and look after your voice, especially when you're doing longer tours and longer sets every night. You can't just sort of smoke and do lines and drink 15 beers every night because you wake up the next morning and you've got no throat left. So you have, to, uh, you have to be a bit more wary of all that sort of thing and look after yourself a bit. Yeah, sleep is important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we never used to think it was in them early days. It'd be like, see who could stay up the longest. But, <laughs> but um, where was the where was the live album recorded then? The Rough and Ready, the one that came out during the pandemic. Um, that was um, our Christmas show at Coco in London a few years ago. Um, there was some footage, uh, some stuff recorded at Salac Open Air Festival in France, and the other stuff was recorded in Athens in Greece in 2019. We went out there and did a couple of shows, and there was no plans to release that as a as an album at all. And then obviously, all of our touring got cancelled last summer because yeah. of COVID, and we were looking at ways that we could sort of maintain the band. Because obviously, as you know, Joe Band still have overheads to pay. We had storage at our studio for our gear, and we had you know our quarterly tax bills from the HMRC still coming in, and things like that. So. We were looking at different ways. Um, we we sold, we printed a load of different merchandise and pushed the merchandise, and and we'd never had a Bandcamp page. And then we started working with Dan Tobin, who suggested that um, we should do a Bandcamp page. And if you've got any live recordings sent around, maybe look at putting them together as a as a little you know exclusive album. So we spoke to our front of house guy and said, have you got any recordings? Luckily, he'd taken some desk recordings from those shows I mentioned. And we spoke to him and said, if you can knock them into shape and make them sound half decent, you know, maybe we consider putting a, putting an album together. He did that and it sounded fantastic. And with it being the 25th uh, anniversary, we were already asking fans to submit loads of like photos and memorabilia and stuff from over the years. So that all sort of came together to put together a little digital booklet for the album. And we threw that up on the Bandcamp page and it did really well. And there was obviously a lot of demand for a physical copy of it because the artwork's great and, yeah. and everybody wanted to have that. Um, so we spoke to a few labels and we sorted out a deal. And, and now obviously you've got, I've got one here. This, the CD is, is out now and the, the vinyl copy is coming out 
Um, March 22nd, I think it is next year, or May 22nd. I can't remember exactly, nice. but, but if um, I do yeah. one like um, band camp, it, I find that like there's a lot of goodwill towards bands with it. Like, in yeah. terms of you could get fans who are paying 15 quid whenever you can only pay a fiver to download it or listen for free yeah. on Spotify, you know. That's it. And I think Bandcamp have been very supportive of bands throughout the whole kind of lockdown and COVID period. That, that first Friday of every month, they'd waive their fees so the bands take 100% of the money that was being mm. paid to them, which was really helpful. And yeah, it's a decent platform. I mean, didn't have those platforms in the early days when we started out. There was no SoundCloud, no Bandcamp. No, we were like busy trading tips. Exactly. That's how we used to do it. It was all take trading and standing outside gigs in the rain handing out flyers and things yeah, like that. Yeah, for fuck's sake. And it's changed. Now, now bands can sort of record at home using Garage on their phone or something, put together a sort of six-track EP, whop it up on Bandcamp, and bosh, they're ready to tour. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it, how fast that um, technology is after... It you is, know. yeah. It's it's compared for it in Bitcoin It's kind of changed the way the whole music industry works. Now, you used to have to go out and tour to promote a record, but now you have to sort of record a record to promote a tour. <laughs> it's, it's kind of changed everything. Yeah, I mean, would you think Orange Goblin would have been discovered now if he were? Yeah, we're that good. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to think so. Obviously, you can't tell. That's why it goes back to what I was saying earlier about being in the right place at the right time. It was just there was something happening within that scene, and we came along at the right time. Mm. No more than Ireland, Ben, as well. The UK don't support the arts or music either, do they? No, really. No, I mean, the government don't really give a shit. Whereas mm. you've got Scandinavian countries where they get a massive grant from the government yeah. to help them f- pursue a career in music. And I know there are other certain countries across Europe that do that as well. But here, it's almost as if, you know, as we saw during COVID, mm. we, were, we were the last thought. We were, we were the first industry to get closed down and we were the last one to reopen and there was, it was touch and go about whether the government was going to support anything whether they were going to sort of pay insurance fees to festivals that were losing millions of pounds because they had to cancel and roll their lineups over and it was just, you know a worrying time within the industry and it took a lot of campaigning on behalf of, you know, people from the musicians union and from the, from the live sector and Mark David at the, um, the music venues trust and people like that, that really did kick up a stink and cause a fuss and say, look, you know, this is a, an industry in this country that's worth 6.2 billion pounds a year, which is, which is more than like the fishing industry and things. And yeah, there was there was just people just brushed it aside. The politicians brushed it aside, which which is a shame because you know if you look at between you know the UK and Ireland, the amount of fantastic music that has come out of these this area over the last fifty years is incredible. Given the world, you know the likes of the Beatles, the Stones, Pink Floyd, the Who, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath. It's it's an insane volume of talent that has come out of a tiny island. Mm-hmm. So why they don't promote it and, and support it I don't know yeah it's very well, maybe frustrating that's why, maybe that's why the music is good though because you know we're always fighting against something I think you have to have that kind of that negativity to push against to create something worthwhile look, look at punk when, when that came around it was I'm here. Um, can only make uh, good albums when the conservatives are in power 
you know, whenever the Conservatives are out and Labour come in, millions on a bit of a chin, you know. You look at when Metallica was singing, their music was great, and then they became millionaires, and well. Yeah. <laughs> I am speaking, the table. Speaking yeah. of uh, new music, do you think Harry will play much uh, of a role in writing with the new? Absolutely. I'd, 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 I'd like that. We've encouraged him to write because I think that's that's important that, it's a different band now. We don't just want to sort of recreate what we've done in the past with Martin, and there's no disrespect to Martin, but obviously... Yeah, shout Harry out to Martin. Yeah. Harry has to uh, sort of have his own input and his own influence, and with his background and his pedigree, I think that can only be a good thing. You know, he's he's a very talented musician. Not, he's not just a bass player. He's a great vocalist, a great guitarist, plays keyboards, sort of plays anything he turns his hand to, really. So it's going to be interesting to see what he comes up with. To know the way you have um, a certain producers that you go to the whole time. Have you got that far yet even? We've got some ideas. We started talking to people and it's just a case of schedules. I mean, obviously, we, it's not worth us booking a date to start recording yet because we haven't got a single song written. Oh, haven't we've you? Got, okay. There's a lot of ideas knocking about and we've got to start knocking the riffs into shape. But that's the way we always work. It's kind of like Joe, Chris, and in this case, Harry, are all coming up with all these ideas and we've got like a WhatsApp group where we trade ideas and we're listening to them and now it's like, like that one will work with this one and start putting it together but obviously our focus has been on getting Harry match fit doing the Scandinavian yeah. tour and this UK tour and once that's out of the way in the new year we'll focus on the writing and, and recording You might have an old guest vocalist on it as well or a guest musician I don't know I mean the last time we had Phil Campbell from yeah. Motorhead played on the last album which was great um, but we haven't really given any thought to that. Um, the Phil Campbell thing happened because it was like a mutual. I was working for Phil at the time. I was his booking agent um, and became good friends. Just happened to mention mention it to him, and he was like, "Yeah, I'd love to. It'd be, a, be an honour." And then you know he returned a favour and got me to sing on his solo album last year, the yeah. Old Lion Still Raw, which was an incredible thing for me because he took me down to his studio in South Wales and you walk in there and he's got all the old motorhead stage carpets on the floor and all the motorhead uh, cabinets with the war pig fucking spray painted on them just like oh Gee, man yeah. this is like fucking Pandora's box for me and um, <laughs> yeah and then I, you know it's just an honour to, to be asked by Phil Campbell who played in motorhead for 30 years so and then see my name on the on the back of the album, sandwiched between Alice Cooper and Dee Snyder. <laughs> Doesn't <laughs> get awesome. better than that, man. No. <laughs> Rob Alford's on there as well. So, you know, I was in good company with that. It was nice. I tell you, you could retire on that loan, man. That's class. <laughs> exactly. well, I wish I could. I ain't seen any royalties. <laughs> <laughs> You're also working for United Talent Agents. How did that come about? I was. I'm, I'm not anymore. Okay. I, I left UTA last year. Um, All right, okay. But that, that came about because obviously, you know, I'd worked in music management at a company called 115 for the best part of 10 years. And I was um, under the guidance of Paul Lowesby there, helping the day to day running of the office and looking after artists like David Gilmore, um, his interest in Pink Floyd, obviously the Sid Barrett estate, wow. um, George Holland, Deacon Blue, and a weird variety of stuff. And it gave me a real insight into how the industry works. And then it was in 2012 where I left there to do Orange Goblin full-time. Oh, that, okay. that was when we'd made the decision on the back of the eulogy for the Damned album. Um, and we had a couple of years touring the world, um, did really well, but we was a bit naive about the financial side of it and it didn't really work out. So we all had to come back and find jobs. I did a work, bit of work as a tour manager looking after a few bands and touring around Europe. 
Um, and when I came back from that, um, Paul Ryan, who was the guitar player in Cradle of Filth on the first album, he's a long-term promoter and established booking agent now who looks after a lot of big ba big bands at what was then the agency group uh, and then became UTA. And he said, like, you must have played every venue in Europe. You must know all the promoters, all the festivals. You know how to do a settle sheet. You know, have you ever considered being a booking agent? I said, no, I hadn't really, but, you know, it makes sense. So I went in there, had a few interviews and, and got the job. And from day one, I was given a computer and a phone and they just said, build your own roster, take it from there. And I, I built a really cool roster. Uh, while I was there, it was stuff like Phil Campbell and the Bastard Sons and Monolord and Voivod and Shooter Jennings and The Sword and all these cool bands. And um, Class. Yeah, and, and then when COVID hit, I had to restrict the thing. So a lot of agents got laid off, but I'd already sort of made plans to launch my own booking agency, which I did in November last year called Route One Booking. And here I am now in these plush offices down in Cornwall, uh, my own boss. Wow, so, uh, Cornwall. Yeah, uh, me and my wife moved down here in January after 30 years living in East London. It was time for a change and um, the pace of life down here is is so laid back it's, 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 yeah. I'll be lucky if I see anyone for like four days at a time. So it's completely opposite of London but it's great and it gives me a chance to focus on what I need to do obviously looking after Gamma Bomb as well for UK bookings now and um, yeah we're building a really decent roster and, and now things it was, it was a testing year obviously with COVID and festivals not happening and stuff like that we weren't sure how much money we'd make but we're we're coming out of that and now we're starting to see the benefits of sticking with it Mm. Again, like you'd have massive input in relation to a new band, say, for example, that will come on under your roster. They wanted to tour the US or Europe as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, in the, in the old times, a booking agent was, you know, just that. They would, they would take care of the live side of things. But I think with the music industry the way it is now and the technology involved and the, the, the need for strategy and, and the label, the management, the booking agency, all to be in tandem and, and work together, you, you kind of take on a, a bit of everything. So a booking agent might sort of do a bit of management as well and, and just advise and consult to artists. And, and it's uh, very different from how it used to be. But I like that. I like being hands-on. You know, I've, I've looked after the affairs of Orange Goblin throughout our career. And yeah. they sitting there doing the accounts and things like that. And, and my assistant, Jack, sitting there and he's going, I mean, he didn't think you'd be 26 years on still counting receipts and things. I was like, I'd like to because I would not trust anyone else to do it. I know it's being done. So. <laughs> and you are going to play the US actually next year. Desert Fest, that's some lineup. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, you know, we we did a US tour back in 2019, which was a bit tumultuous, really, because our drummer Chris had his visa declined at the last minute. So we had to find a replacement drummer. And after that, we were kind of like, are we going to bother with the stakes again? And we was like, I don't know, it's going to take something special. But then this offer for Desert Fest New York come along, we're going to put a few shows around it to make it worth our while. But yeah, to be going back over there and playing alongside the like a Baroness and Harm Fire and Red nice. Fang, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. So we're excited about it. Yeah, cool. Anything else, Joe? There before we wrap it up. And I'm just a, I think it's a testimony to uh, what an amical fella you are, Ben. That there's a lot of bands like Voivod that you were previously working with that whenever you were wanting to set up your own agency, said, you know what, I'm gonna go with this guy. You know. Yeah, I appreciate that. It was. Um... You know, it was, it was 
at a time when you just lost a job, it was kind of heartwarming to know that a lot of the clients and the managers that I spoke to said, well, we'll come with you. He's like, we want to work with Ben Ward. We don't want to particularly work with UTA and be passed around the office to, to any old agent. It's like, it's our trust that we have in you. So, so yeah, that is, that's kind of, you know, why you do it. It's reassuring and unless you know you're doing a good job. So Yeah, fair play. Ronan? Any last words? Just a pleasure to chat to you. That's just amazing. Yeah, no, to chat to you all. Massive yeah. fan. So. Massive yeah, fan, exactly. Great. And listen, Ben, thanks for coming on the show, especially being the 150th episode, man. I'm, I'm honoured that been, you decided to join. It's been, it's been good. Okay, so look out for Orange Goblin. Yeah, you, yeah. You're very good on Facebook, man. You keep it up to date every day or so anyways. I was going to yeah. say that Irish for Orange Goblin is like Goblini Arashta. <laughs> I got Joe to say it one time in uh, in on the pint in Dublin a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. And he was like, Are you guys? We'll go bleed you off Just for right. future reference. I don't, I don't think Joe was particularly trying to say it like that. He's probably just pissed. Yeah. Just... <laughs> and uh, thanks a million for coming on the show again, Ben. Much appreciated. Ben, look forward to getting back to Ireland next year. Cheers, guys. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ron. And, and crucially, support your local medicine. Cheers. Cheers.